0: We are continuing this morning our series entitled Finding Purpose in the Psalms. Uh, And my goal this morning uh, is to finish uh, Psalm 78. I made a mistake though. And I'm sorry, I asked you to turn to Psalm 78. Instead, let me ask you to turn to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. And... uh, That was my mistake. But we will get to Psalm 78 in a minute, but there's something we need to look at first. In Genesis 49. Now, as we said before, Psalm 78 gives us an overview of Israel's history as a nation from the time of the exodus from Egypt until the present day. And by present day, of course, I mean Asaph's day. Uh, He was the author of, Asaph, remember, was appointed to be the the chief over the choirs of the temple in the day of King David. And so that's the era in which this psalm is written, What it is contemporary. And uh, before the Exodus, though, before Moses, before the Israelites were ever enslaved by Pharaoh, the family of uh, Israel went down willingly. You remember, from Canaan to Egypt. Yahweh, the Lord, had sent Joseph ahead of them in order to prepare the way for Jacob's family to be saved from a seven-year famine that came throughout the land. By the end of the book of Genesis, though, Jacob is about to die. And in, in the final days of his life, he calls his sons to him, and he pronounces a blessing on his 12 sons. That's really what we find in Genesis chapters 49 and 50. Now, I don't plan to uh, read all of them this morning, but I'd like to direct your attention to two of them. First, uh, to Judah, and then to Joseph. Joseph, of course, representing the two tribes, his sons, Ephraim Ephraim and manasseh so look with me genesis 49 and beginning at verse 8 the blessing to judah judah you are he whom your brothers shall praise your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies your father's children shall bow down before you judah is a lion's whelp from the prey my son you have gone up he bows down he lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. God promised something here through Jacob. To Judah. He promised that Judah would have a preeminent position among the tribes of Israel. He promised that Judah would have military success. He promised that he would have great strength and ultimately that he would have the scepter of the king. In other words, it was God's plan that the kings of Israel would come from the tribe of Judah, that he would execute justice and judgment in the land. But I want to direct your attention as well to what uh, what the Lord said concerning Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, verse 22 of that same chapter. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well, his branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate. From his brothers. Joseph. Was to be fruitful. This means here. That he is to have many children. A sign of great blessing from God. He is to remain strong. In spite of the attacks that he would endure. But notice here the source of his strength. It's not his abundant offspring. You see normally. and Especially in ancient times. Nations and peoples. Would rise in strength. And rise in power by having many children and having many descendants. But that's not the source of his strength. According to these verses we read, it would be by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, and by God your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you. What we have here is we have these promises. Promises to Judah, promises to Ephraim and Manasseh through Joseph. We're going to consider those in light of Psalm 78 in just a moment. I'd like to pray and ask God's blessing as we study his word. Because I think these passages we've looked at in Genesis 49 will help give us a perspective to understand what the psalmist is saying and how we can draw a conclusion to his psalm. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word that you've given us. Jesus said that your word is truth. I pray that you'd help us to see it that way today that we would agree with you, that we would surrender to your word, which is true. Lord, I pray that you would guide us with it, direct our hearts, that we might love you as we ought to love, that we might obey you and surrender to your will. I pray that you would do your work here in our midst. Use me as I speak, that I might be able to communicate your truth without any sort of mixture of error or my own uh, self, but instead I would bring glory only to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In Genesis 49, we have promise here. We, We looked at the promise to Judah and the promise to Ephraim and Manasseh. That promise to Ephraim and Manasseh was that they would experience unusual fruitfulness, blessings of heaven above and of earth beneath, of the breasts and of the womb, he says. Considering that blessing in Genesis 49, and you can turn back to Psalm 78, but considering that blessing, it's no wonder that by the time of the Exodus, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh were the most numerous among the children of Israel. It's not surprising that Joshua, who led the people after the death of Moses, was from the tribe of Ephraim. It's not surprising that the land given to Ephraim and Manasseh was two of the biggest plots in the land of Canaan. It's not surprising that the city of Shiloh, which is found in the tribe of Ephraim, was the primary location of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant from the time of the conquest of Joshua until the time of Samuel and David, nearly 400 years one thing is for sure, and I think we need to keep this in mind as we consider Psalm 78 in light of Genesis 49. God kept his word to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. There can be no doubt about it. God kept his word. Now, before we get into Psalm 78, I just want to point out to you one more thing that is there in Genesis 49. You might have seen when we read through these verses, but in verses 23 and 24, he says that the tribes of Joseph have come under attack. And he said this, but his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. What's interesting is when we come to Psalm 78, we come across in verse nine, this statement, the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. They forgot God's works. They didn't keep their covenant with him, we're told. now. There's no doubt that that God kept his word. He kept his promise to abundantly bless Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribes that were descended from Joseph. That was God's promise, and God kept his word. But there can also be no doubt that those very same tribes proved unfaithful to God God kept his word but they did not we've already seen over the past two weeks as we've been considering this psalm how Asaph here in Psalm 78 demonstrated Israel's unbelief their disobedience he cataloged their their doubting and their complaining through the years of the wandering in the wilderness he talked about how, uh, how Yahweh consumed their lives in worthlessness And in worry. That entire generation that came out of Egypt, with the exception of just two men, Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. But Asaph wasn't done after just considering that one generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. In verse 40, he continues the account by looking at the next generation. The ones that were born in the wilderness or the ones that were too young coming out of Egypt to decide for themselves to follow the Lord. And so Asaph continues the story. Unfortunately, things really don't change very much. Look at what he says there in Psalm 78 verse 40. How often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the enemy. When he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, You see, all through the years in the wilderness, first one generation and then the next, put God to the test. They provoked him. They grieved him. And he uses the same terms here to describe their failure. He says there uh, in, in verse 42, They did not remember his power. It's exactly what he said of the previous generation. Yahweh had done signs and wonders in Egypt and had continued to do them in the years since. And yet they forgot his works. They doubted his love. They questioned his power. I I need to say this because I've said it both the last two weeks, but I need to say it again because we need to understand when this passage, when this psalm talks about not remembering or about forgetting He's not talking here about what happens to us when we lose our keys and we don't remember where we put them. Or we can't find something that we thought we had. He's talking here about a willful neglect. A turning away from the truth. They didn't remember because they didn't want to remember. That's the problem here. This is a willful act of disobedience on the part of the children of Israel they put them to they put them to the test they turned away and asaph goes back in the next number of verses to describe some of those works to remind us of some of the things that god had done that they willfully forgot But along the way, he's going to make another point, and we'll get to that here as we go. So look at verse 43 there. He's going to describe now what these works were that they did not remember, that they turned away from. When he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, what did he do? He turned the rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. He sent swarms uh, of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. And he also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. These are the things that God did for his people. In fact, these verses that we just read describe six, uh, at least six of the plagues, maybe seven, depending on how uh, you interpret all of the references here. The plagues in Egypt certainly describes the water turning to blood, swarms of flies, frogs, and locusts, the hail mixed with fire that we read about in Exodus, and of course the death of the firstborn. All of these signs. What did they do? They brought death and destruction on the Egyptians. And and Asaph tells us here, the reason they did is they were the product of God's wrath. He says there in verse 49, these plagues represented the fierceness of God's anger, his wrath, his indignation, and trouble. What's really interesting, though, I think is in the next verse, in verse 50. Because notice what he says here. It says he made a path for his anger. That's an interesting expression, an interesting idea. He made a path. He directed his anger at the Egyptians. There's something important for us to understand that this verse is telling us here. God's judgments, when they came, they came with great precision. He poured out his wrath on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. He tells us in the next verses what that was. He says that it was destroying the firstborn, the first of their strength, he says, in the tents of Ham. He took the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians. The Egyptians are descendants of Noah's son, Ham, which is what that's referring to. But what's interesting is when it says he took the first of their strength, it's really saying that God, in, in essence, was striking at their manhood. The very first issue, their firstborn son, was, was it was the culmination of their strength and vigor As people. And God took that away. These verses really put into perspective just how devastating the plague of the death of the firstborn was. I'm not trying to minimize the loss of a child. Please don't misunderstand me. But Asaph says this was more than that. This was about striking at the very heart of who they were and their power as a people. This was a contrast between the power of the Lord Yahweh who sits enthroned in heaven and the weakness of the gods of Egypt that they worshipped. But there's another contrast here that Asaph is pointing to that I think we need to take note of. In verse 52 he hints at it here. There's a contrast On one hand, Yahweh is striking down the strength of Egypt by taking the lives of the firstborn. But on the other hand, what is he doing for his people? He leads them out of bondage here. In verse 52, he describes it as guiding them like a flock. God is their shepherd. He's leading his sheep. That's what he says he did there. His great power rained down fury on the Egyptians. But... He'd made a path for his anger. That's important. Because none of his anger, none of his wrath went astray. There's no collateral damage. There's no overspray, if you will. Just a precision strike of wrath and judgment going right to the heart of Pharaoh's pride. That's interesting. I was thinking about the the U.S. military. Our military is very strong. And... uh, and, and really, it's amazing to see some of the things that our, uh, our U.S. servicemen and women are able to do uh, with their training and the technology and the equipment that we've given them. Uh, and uh, some of the technology that's been developed, I had the privilege when we lived in New Mexico of, of spending a little bit of time at White Sands Missile Range, uh, working with some scientists and engineers there, uh, and seeing, I mean, we didn't get to see any of the, like the top secret stuff, but seeing some of the things that they get to work on and some of the technologies, it's amazing. Uh, what they're able to do. And they have developed some, some, some weapons that can destroy targets with incredible precision. I mean, they're always after a more precise way of, of engaging the enemy and minimizing civilian casualties. But here's the problem. Humanly speaking, they can't ever minimize them completely. They can't do away with them. There's always some collateral damage. But with God it's different because when God strikes Egypt, when he goes after Pharaoh and he proves his power and he humbles Pharaoh, he does it in such a way that in the same time he protects his people and he guards them and guides them like a shepherd guarding and guiding his flock. He's able to destroy his enemies while protecting his people. That's the power of God that's on display. And the people here, Asaph, is reminding us, reminding the people of his generation, that yes, God poured out his wrath and his fury on Pharaoh and destroyed him, but remember, when he did that, he didn't strike you by mistake. He made a path for his anger, and he only struck them. He delivered you. You see, that's important to contrast, to remember That even when God was exercising wrath and judgment, he was being merciful to his people. And yet they've forgotten. They've willfully turned away from that truth, that reality. Now, as I said earlier, Asaph is moving forward in time. He's looking beyond that first generation. So he quickly moves to their children And he talks about the the entrance into the promised land and the conquest, verses 54 and 55. He says this, he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He's speaking here of the land of Canaan. Verse 55, he also drove out the nations before them. He allotted them an inheritance by survey and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. This is really astounding. See how God blessed his people. Notice what verse 55 tells us he did. It says, first of all, he drove out the Canaanites. Canaanites lived there in fortified cities, and Israel came in as a people never being battle-tested, not with a hardened military, not with siege equipment. They came in just themselves, and they had the women and the children and everyone there. That was not how you fought a war. But the point here is that they weren't the ones driving out the Canaanites. God was doing that didn't matter that the Canaanites had fortified walls and impregnable fortress cities. God was driving them out. And then notice what he did after he drove them out. He allotted them an inheritance by survey. This is important. Nobody was overlooked in Israel. When the people came into the land, every family got their inheritance as God had promised. Nobody was left out. Because God gave them what he promised them and he provided for them so that everyone was given their allotment. And the last part of this verse is really maybe the most amazing thing. They, he made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. What he's talking about here is the tents of their enemies. They didn't have to build the land. They came in and took it over. So they were able to move in and live in the cities that they had not built. Dwell in homes that they had not erected. They were able to take over the fortifications of their enemies. That was God's doing. This was how God blessed the people. He brought them into the land, and he gave them the land of Canaan. We might expect that the Israelites, after having come into the land of promise, defeating every foe, now that they would settle down, they would worship God, they would train their children to love and serve the Lord who had been so good to them. But... It's not exactly how things went. Look at verse 56. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. Anybody know why God drove the Canaanites out of the land of Canaan. <clears throat> anybody know why God told the Israelites that you give the Canaanites this ultimatum? Leave or die. That was all, that was the only choice. Leave or die. Because if you don't leave, we're gonna drive you out, we're gonna destroy you. You ever wonder why God gave them that? Do you do, does anybody know? Well, this wasn't a land dispute. It wasn't like the Israelites said, "Hey, this land really belongs to us. You got to leave. You're, you know, you're squatting here, and these are really our lands. We're gonna just, you know, we're gonna evict you." That wasn't the situation. The Canaanites had lived here before and, and, and owned this land, and it for centuries before the Israelites ever came along. Before the Israelites were even a nation, the Canaanites already owned this land. They had prior claim here, so it wasn't a land dispute. <clears throat> the reason for it was very simple. The Canaanites were some of the most vile and wicked and filthy idolaters in the world. And so what God was doing in driving out the Canaanites and using the Israelites to do that was he was exercising judgment on the Canaanites for their wickedness, for their Absolutely obscene and immoral society that was top to bottom riddled with corruption and vile and filthy affections. The Lord was using the Israelites to bring judgment. But then it makes you ask this question. If God was sending the Israelites into Canaan to drive up the Canaanites in order to judge the Canaanites for their wickedness and their idolatry and their immorality, why then, after they had driven them out, did the Israelites turn around and begin to worship the very same gods and practice the very same acts of immorality and vile filth that so uh, corrupted the Canaanites? That's exactly what Asaph says happened here. Well, the answer to that question is the same as the answer to another question. We asked this last week, or something related to this. Why did the Israelites, back in verse 20, point to the miracle of the water from the rock... And then in the same sentence question whether God could provide bread and meat. Why point to one miraculous work of God and then say well he did this incredibly miraculous unbelievable thing that could never happen. But I don't know that he could really do this equally incredible miraculous thing that could never happen. Well the answer to that question is the same as the one I asked here the reason that they questioned God's ability to provide bread and meat, the reason that they followed the Canaanites in immorality and idolatry, even after they drove those same people out of the land for that sin. The reason for it is very simply this. They had an unbelieving heart and an unfaithful spirit. That's what we read back in verse 8. Asaph said, this was the problem with your fathers. They had hearts that were not right, and they had spirits that were not faithful. They were unbelievers. They were unfaithful to God. This is the, the evidence. This is all the evidence that we need of the corruption of man. After driving out the immoral and perverse Canaanites, they adopted the very same idols and the very same worship practices. He says here they made use of the same high places. There in verse 58. They bowed down to images, also in the same verse. He says they were turned aside like a deceitful bow. That phrase right there needs to catch our attention. Because in, in, that phrase in verse 57, they turned aside like a deceitful bow, is very, very similar to a phrase used back in verse 9. When he talked about Ephraim turning back in the day of battle, having been armed with a bow. And then we can go all the way back to Genesis 49, what we read earlier, and see that although God had been faithful to make Ephraim prosperous and keep his word, Ephraim and all the tribes of Israel had proven faithless and disobedient. And so the theme repeats itself again. God's people turn aside. He brings judgment on them. And in this instance... Asaph is going to talk here about the judgment of God. He's he's coming ahead in time. Now we've we've gone from the Exodus to the wilderness to Canaan to the conquest. And now we fast forward all the way in time to come to the time of Samuel. When he was a boy. And Eli was chief priest there in Shiloh at the tabernacle. And his sons Hophni and Phinehas were there uh, priests who were corrupt. Working there in the tabernacle. Look at verse 59. He's going to describe what happened here. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. There was a battle with the Philistines. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you remember, you may be familiar with this. If you remember, the children of Israel took the ark of the covenant out of the tabernacle there in Shiloh. They brought it to the camp of the army where they were encamped against the Philistines. And their hope was that the presence of the ark would bring God's blessing on the battle. Sadly, we realized they were simply being superstitious. And they were trying to manipulate God to do their will. There's no sense in which the people were actually humbling themselves and worshipping Yahweh, which might have resulted in victory, although, in point of fact, this was, this was part of God's plan for judgment. And it failed their attempt to manipulate God, as it always does. The army was defeated. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. Asaph describes it here, uh, there in, uh, in, in verse 61. He speaks here about the strength being delivered into captivity and the glory of Israel into the enemy's hand. I believe he's talking there about the Ark of the Covenant being delivered into the hand of the Philistines who took the Ark and they placed it in the house of one of their gods. And that same day, Eli's two sons died in the battle. Word of that loss of the Ark of the Covenant and the death of his sons came to Eli. And when he heard of it, the Bible says he fell backward off of his chair. He broke his neck and he died. He was an old man. That same time, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, heard of the the defeat and the loss of the Ark of the Covenant and her husband's death. And she was at the time of giving birth and she went into labor and she died giving birth to her son. And verse 64 maybe describing the death of those priests and the, the wife who makes no lamentation because as she died, she didn't cry out a lamentation for her husband's death. What she said as she died was she named her son who was had just been born, she named him Ichabod. Meaning, there is no glory. And she said, the glory of Yahweh has departed from Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the enemy. What a low and dark day in the history of Israel. Maybe the lowest day up to this point from the Exodus to this point. Maybe this is the lowest day in all of their history. The army has been defeated. The priests, the high priest and his sons died the same day. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistine pagan uh, enemy. These corrupt idolaters and they take this Ark of the Holy God and they put it in the house of their their man-made idol, Dagon. Foolishly thinking that they somehow have, have won a victory over Yahweh. What a dark day. But even on this darkest of days, we see that God is faithful. In stark contrast to the unbelief of his people. Look there at verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep. What a picture. Does God sleep? Well, Psalm 121 tells us that he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. No, God does not sleep. And yet Asaph says the Lord was as though he had been asleep. The, the second picture in this verse is even more striking. Like a mighty man who shouts because of wine. I pondered this for a little bit this week. This is an interesting thing to say. An interesting illustration to use to illustrate the actions of God. To compare God to a, a man who is drunk with wine, crying out. It seems strange. I wish we had time to deal with it more. We just don't, though. The point here, though, is very clear, that even in her darkest day, Israel, though she is undeserving and unfaithful, is still the apple of God's eye. Because notice, it says that he arose, he awoke as from sleep, he was like a mighty man shouting because of wine, and he beat back his enemies, he put them to a perpetual reproach. Look at verse 67, moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph. Here we come to the great theme of the psalm. He rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. And guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. In her darkest day, Israel was still the apple of God's eye. He came to her defense. Under Samuel, then Saul, and then finally David, the Philistines who captured the Ark of the Covenant and routed the Israelites were themselves subjugated. They were brought under and put under the the, the subjugation of Israel Under the hands here of Samuel, Saul, and David, the Philistines were were brought down low. God roused from sleep, and he put his enemies to perpetual reproach, Asaph says. So that the Philistines were subjugated, put down. And what's more, and this is really the point of the entire psalm, we come to its conclusion, the same God who kept his promises to Ephraim and blessing the tents of Joseph, He equipped them with strength and abundant offspring. But here's the thing that's important. God didn't just keep his promise to Ephraim. He would also keep his promise to the tribe of Judah. Remember, we read that promise first in Genesis 49. That Judah would be the focal point of all the tribes of Israel. That out of Judah would come the scepter and the lawgiver. Yahweh rejected the tent of Joseph, according to verse 67. He didn't choose the tribe of Ephraim. But let me, just, let me just tell you this, because this is important. There's a lot of failure in this psalm. It'd be easy for us to say, well, he rejected Ephraim because they failed. He rejected Ephraim because they didn't follow through. They weren't faithful. Well, if that's the case, then you and I are in a lot of trouble. Because I find myself in my heart struggling to be faithful on a daily basis. That's not what's going on here. He didn't reject them because they were faithful. By the way, Judah was just as unfaithful. See, he didn't single out. You can't single out one of the tribes. Well, Ephraim was unfaithful, but Judah was faithful. No. no. Read the history. No, no, no. Judah was right in the mix. So he, he didn't choose Ephraim. He rejected Ephraim and he chose Judah. But it wasn't because one was faithful and the other wasn't. No, 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 the Lord chose Judah and rejected Ephraim because God was faithful to keep his word. He rejected Shiloh. Look at verse 68. He rejected Shiloh. That was the the town in Ephraim where the tabernacle had been. But what did he choose in its place? He chose Jerusalem, Mount Zion here. Which he loved. He chose Jerusalem to be the center of Israel's worship and his dwelling. And he established his sanctuary there. But here's get this the only motive that that, that we're told here for why God did that is this Mount Zion, which he loved. This wasn't because Ephraim was unfaithful and Judah was that God chose him. It was because God is a loving God. It's because God is faithful to keep his word and God is a gracious God. This is all about who God is, why God operates the way he does. It has nothing to do with you or me and our faithfulness. It has everything to do with God being God. But notice here in these last three verses, there's another choice here. He chose David. What a choice. The youngest of seven brothers in a relatively obscure family from the tribe of Judah. A young man who grew up tending his father's sheep on the hillsides out, outside of Bethlehem. He says here in verse 70 that he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds and made him to be the shepherd of his people Israel. David was truly a believer a willing follower of Yahweh. And God was pleased to fulfill his own promise to the tribes of Israel through David. Now there's another passage of note here. I'm just going to make reference to it for sake of time. Second Samuel chapter 7, the Lord says this of David, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And if we were to continue reading in Second Samuel seven, we'd see that in that passage, the Lord lays out what we call the Davidic covenant, which includes the promise of the coming Messiah, who was to be a descendant of David. Now, whether Asaph has all that in view here, I don't know, but it seems through the language that he uses that he may be alluding to that passage. It certainly wouldn't be out of bounds at the end of this psalm to allude to the promise of a future son of David who would shepherd God's people with integrity and great skill. Now, having said all of that, and realizing that there's about six more messages worth of material in there that I skimmed over and would have loved to have addressed, (laughs) but I didn't want to take the next three months to get through this psalm we have to come to a conclusion and ask a simple question. What's the point of Psalm 78? What's the timeless truth here that we're supposed to learn and apply to our lives? Well, I think there's some things this psalm teaches us, two things really specifically that I want to point to. The first is this, that we as human beings are unrighteous and unfaithful at heart. The example of the Israelites makes this very plain. You see, in the wilderness, after all that God had done for them in Egypt, seeing miracles literally every day in the form of bread from heaven, they doubted God's goodness, and they doubted God's power. And then they were in Canaan, and they saw God drive out the immoral Canaanites, and they were living in the very cities and homes of those people that they had driven out. And yet they adopted their same pagan worship practices, and depraved customs, and they turned away from Yahweh. Our problem as people is not that we need a better education. It's not that we need more opportunities to succeed. Our problem is that we are adulterous, selfish, pagan idolaters at heart. And no amount of human effort can solve that problem. On the other hand, in contrast to our unfaithfulness and unrighteousness, we see God is faithful and compassionate. Now when I say God is faithful, I have to, I have to explain that that means that God is faithful in everything. This includes justice. The history of Israel bears this out. When, when God's people complained and they murmured in unbelief, He punished them for their sin. He even brought plagues and death to thousands of them. And when they were in the land of Canaan and they followed their defeated enemies in worshiping idols and serving their own lusts, he raised up enemies to invade the land, killing thousands and enslaving the people. God is utterly faithful to judge sin. And we can't ever forget that. You can't live for pleasure, you can't live for pride, for indulging yourself without facing the consequences. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Please don't play with sin. Because God is faithful to judge. But when I say God is faithful, I want to say this as well. He is also faithful to keep his promises. And over and over again we see in the life of the nation of Israel that God continued to deliver his people. He continued to warn them about judgment that was coming. And he continued to turn their hearts back to him. Why did he do that? Why did he keep going with them? Why didn't he just give up and say, you know what? You're incorrigible. I'm done with you. Why? Because he had made promises to them. Specifically, he had promised to make the children of Israel a holy people. He says in the book of Deuteronomy that he chose them to be a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. And so while God is faithful to judge sin, he is also faithful to forgive. And so in this psalm, Asaph speaks of God's compassion and his mercy because in spite of their failures, the children of Israel were still recipients of his promises. And he always keeps his word. I still think it's important for us to consider this in a practical sense. I think it's imperative. I think it's vital. Let me, let, me, let me say that a different way. Because it doesn't matter what I think. According to this psalm, it is vitally important that we teach our children and our grandchildren and the generations to come the things which God has done. But I have to caution you. It's not enough just to teach bare facts of the things that God has done. If there's one thing that Psalm 78 makes very clear, it's that these truths about what God has done have to be received in faith if they're going to have any significant lasting impact. We have to believe them. We have to commit ourselves to them, to trust in them. And so if, if we are going to teach the next generation and if these truths about God are going to have an impact on the next generation, they must believe them. So how do we teach these things so that younger generations will believe? This is the big question. This is the big question that you know, church growth experts are trying to figure out how do, we, how do we connect with the next generation? How do we teach younger people? How do we keep them from leaving our churches and going elsewhere and leaving the faith? How do we keep them here? How do we get them to understand these things? Well, I can't suggest, I can't tell you that I have some, you know, simple solution here to offer you that's going to be a, a, a guaranteed, you know, or your money back kind of thing. But let me just tell you this. I think this is important. First thing. You've got to believe. I've got to believe these truths. You see, you you have to believe these things for yourself. Your children will not trust in Christ if they see that you don't really trust in him. They won't believe that Jesus' death, his burial, or his resurrection matter at all if they don't see and hear how much they matter to you. You've got to believe these things yourself. Your children won't commit their lives to following God and serving Him in the church if they don't see your commitment to obey Him and to serve Him. You have to lead the way by setting the example with your own life. That's square one, absolutely essential. But you must also teach these things as the truth. You see, we can't speak about the things of God as if they're nice ideas. As if they're good ways to live your life that kind of will lead to an improved way of life. We have to speak about God's wonderful works as the foundation of all that is real in this world. We have to to teach our children and grandchildren that God's wisdom applies in every area of life so that they will build their lives they'll build their understanding and their thoughts, how they view the world and how they think about the world on the foundation of God's word. This is what we must do. And then we have to trust God to bring about the change in the hearts of our children and grandchildren and the next generation, the change that we can't bring about. Let's pray. Lord, we, we realize that the history of Israel is very much the history of mankind, generation following generation into unbelief, into disobedience, into apostasy, into sin and immorality, death and destruction. We see it even in our own society. We see it even in our own lives, in our churches, in our own families. That when we turn away from you, we bring upon ourselves judgment and destruction and pain and suffering. And oh Lord, we are so prone to wander. And yet, in the midst of our unfaithfulness, you are always faithful. You keep your word. And you judge sin. I pray that you would help us to commit ourselves completely and totally to believe these truths, to live according to these principles, and then to teach them to the next generation. Not just as helpful facts or nice ideas, but as as fundamental truths upon which to build our lives. And we'll trust you. We'll trust you to lead each of our children, our grandchildren, into faith according to your will and your time not with our efforts or not with not based on our desires but based on you and your love and I pray that you'd help us to trust you in that give us strength to obey to believe and then to teach these truths to those who come after us never to give up and never to quit until we're called home pray that you would Glorify yourself in us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.